You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Heartbeat on this beautiful, sunny Seattle evening, Wednesday evening here. Thank you for joining us. We have a great show planned for you this evening. Before we start, there's just a couple things I wanted to say to our audience. Uh, first off, on behalf of Converge Media, we wanted to send our warm condolences to the Buchanan family here uh, in the Seattle area. Jojo Buchanan is a well-known uh, person in our community out of O'Day High School. Uh, and so our thoughts and prayers are with the Buchanan family uh, in this time. Our show this evening is scheduled to talk. Uh, we have a great guest on with us tonight, with me tonight. Um, I'm going to welcome him in, and then I want to start off just by talking about what's going on in the national news today. So let me introduce in with you. He's a colleague of mine or a former colleague of mine. He is the host of uh, Seattle Here and Now. He's also the host of What's Cooking in Columbia City. Let's welcome John Yasutaki in here from Rainier Avenue Radio. John, welcome on to Heartbeat here at Converge. Oh, thank you. I am so honored. I mean, gee, I mean, little old me. Well, not little old me, but all me. But thank you very much. Uh, I've been, like I said, following you. I've had a chance to see your show as well as be on it. Yes. And now you're in a new, as they say, a new venue, which is even great. Uh, and I appreciate the the invite. Thank you very much. Well, you have you 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 have tentacles in the Seattle area. You have a lot going on here. We're going to talk about, you know, you have been um, God. I looked at your bio. So 40 something years you are definitely an activist you are definitely involved in a lot of equity work and civil rights work and i just want to unpack a lot of the things that you're involved in before we do that you know i wanted to make sure we talked about what's on the hearts and minds of most people across this country uh today which is yet another uh, episode of gun violence of shootings and I, you know i wrestled with what to even say at this point, because I believe, I think the numbers were like, I don't know, 136 shootings now in less than 90 days of uh, 2023. So definitely on target for the largest. And, you know, you can look across all the social media and the national news outlets and it's as if we're paralyzed and no one knows what to do about this. What thoughts do you have about what is happening nationally with gun violence? Keeping in mind, we've had our own here in Seattle. And recently, I think our last one in the Seattle area was in the November timeline. Um, so we're not immune from it here and no families. What thoughts do you have about? Well, I mean, it's obvious. The, the whole issue of gun control, I mean, it has to be at the top of the list. By that, I mean, for people who have lawful means and who are lawfully owners of guns. That's not the issue. The right to own, you know, keep and bear arms, et cetera, the constitution, all of that. But the availability of firearms, whether it be long guns, rifles, shotguns, and or pistols, 
it's just uh, incredible. Uh, it, it, I think I read a few years, well, not even a few years ago, that in the United States, the average family has, what, 2.3 children, but has 4.5 or 5.6 guns. So everybody in the family can have at least one gun or one firearm. And I work with a young man, and uh, there's a group called Responsible Gun Ownership. And what we're finding out is how people are getting a hold of these weapons. They're initially done legally, lawfully, but somehow they get into the hands of these individuals who do what they do. And, I mean, uh, it's going to continue. Uh, I don't I don't see it abating in any way, shape or form. Let's you know, I, I, I followed the debate online about, you know, is it the guns or is it the people who are using the guns? There's an argument on both sides of the equation, and it's probably some of both. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what creates a mass shooter for a second. And I actually um, wanted to show this. Uh, article that I was digging into today to look at the study. There's a recent study that's been done about uh, this. Can we show that uh, for a second here, this article that, Mm. um, and the study talks about, they apparently they interviewed 180 um, people um, who are uh, families, members who are the, um, who have been impacted by this gun violence. And they're talking about things about, uh, you know, mental health and so Mm -hmm. forth. And some of the things that they're saying is that the, I guess the basic foundation or finding that they had in the study is that this is the result of people who have been, who come from early childhood trauma. And Mm -hmm. so it talked a lot about violence in the home, you know, sexual assault, Mm -hmm. uh, parental uh, abuse, mm-hmm. um, what are your thoughts about those, that whole, well, well, certainly the, you know, that's probably going to need a greater body of research on that. Um, because violence is not natural. It, it, it's not an organic thing. It's something that's learned and something that's taught and somebody learns it. Uh, and so somewhere in the continuum of raising a child, uh, there's got to be that issue of dealing with, you know, that person's ang- uh, inability. You know, anger is part of it, too. The inability to manage your anger. I mean, we all get angry, but how we manage it, you know? Uh, you know, yeah, when I, when I was reading this today, the things that were going through me as I read it is, you know, when we look at who predominantly are doing these mass shootings across this country, it's predominantly young white men, young white men. In this particular Nashville shooting, it's a young white woman, I believe, who's transitioning to a uh, man. And I wonder when I read it, when when you think of the findings in the study around abuse and um, trauma, I mean, that is what is done to brown and black communities every single day. We live in those in that kind of trauma and are raised around violence and all the things because there's violence against our communities. So what is triggering? I mean, we all have a right to be angry given the violence that goes on against us. And it is not us that are doing the mass shootings. So I I guess I just don't know how to reconcile it. I mean, I have just wrestled with, you know, we can land on this data to say that this is what's 
triggering it or causing it. But to follow that logic means that the communities that have the violence done against them should arguably be the ones that are committing the violence and are not. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't know that anybody talks about that. I mean, I'm just talking about it because every single day we're waking up, holding our breath, wondering what has happened and is something going to happen again. So I just was curious what your thoughts are. And even for our community, as you listen to this, I will be fascinated to hear. I mean, you can comment on our feed. What do you think we should do? You know, there's, um, I'm, I'm also working on a story. So to be forthcoming about, you know, whether it makes sense to have student resource officers in schools, because those are armed police officers. You know, how do we protect mm-hmm. our kids? Who is the ones that are being disciplined the most? And if we put police officers in the school, who are the kids that are going to get harmed? Like, it's a very um, dicey issue. And so I just I just wanted to give it a, a little bit of t- conversation today, because I think it's important that every community be talking about this issue and trying to figure out ways that we can mitigate this happening. Well, no, that's that's a very good point. Um, I was talking to some people and they mentioned the 1619 Project mm-hmm. and they were talking about the trauma of slavery and how that imparts uh, a trauma uh, intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. And we know what the degradations and uh, uh, and the violence perpetrated on people of African descent in, in this North American variant of slavery. So that, to me, has a legitimacy in terms of the fact that these are behaviors that are, I guess you could say, ingrained in us because of the history of what's going on. But the fact that it's singularly one group of individuals by race and by, you know, uh, gender. Mostly, not exclusively. Not exclusively, but mostly white males. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an issue that that I've heard talk about. Again, violence is learned behavior. Uh, what kind of circumstance uh, dictated their behavior through their childhood and their lear- and the learning process? And when they were identified as having issues, did anybody were we able to you know um, do something about it? You know, uh, remediate it and help that individual. And the thing that bothers me is that in almost all these incidents. They said there have been red flags that showed mm-hmm. that w- there were times along that, again, that time timeline continuum, there were red flags coming up mm-hmm. in and, almost every and, case. Yeah, that's right. And there was parental cooperation. So if you think about what, what was his name, Kyle Rittenhouse and, yeah. you know, the parents. In fact, there's a there's litigation going on now or there's a case. Uh, with the Michigan shootings that are being brought against the parents. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole debate about whether, I mean, do we start addressing this issue by starting to yeah. prosecute parents for it? Because right. are they negligent in the red flags that are, are that are being seen? Yeah. Are they participating in buying the guns? As in Kyle Rittenhouse, they, she, the mom drove him to the site to do the yeah. shootings. Should these parents be held accountable? And if we start to hold the families accountable, is that right, fair? I mean, I, I don't have an answer for it. I'm just, it's fascinating because we can't seem to get Congress to pass any gun control laws. And they, they, <laughs> they get funding from organizations right. like the NRA. 
and National Rifle Association, as well as other groups and those constitutional uh, pundits that, that say, oh, you can take away my right. Well, the, 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 again, the thing is, you have a right to, to keep and bear arms. Okay, that was written for the Constitution way back when, when you had to have a militia to protect this country because you didn't have a standing army. That That's three, four hundred years ago. Now, let, let's be real. The issue of owning, again, again a gun, if it's legally owned, fine. The other aspect is, and oftentimes, and the statistic is very, very prevalent, if a gun is in the home and it gets used, 75 to 80% of the time, it gets used against a family member. Again, that issue of access. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, when my past employment, I was with the Department of Justice. Uh, we were involved in looking at a case involving the shooting up at Marysville High School, Marysville Pilchuck, where this young man got a hold of a gun, a pistol in his home, owned by a family member, I think a grandparent, took that pistol to school and killed himself and I think three or four other people. I mean, um, again, access, again, uh, the availability of it. it and I think it, it's got to be the issue of identifying individuals who need counseling, consultation, et cetera, and also the availability. If you, if we identify individuals who need help and we don't give them help, and then we also have avenues where they can get a hold of a firearm, you know, you're going to have, uh, it's going to be the perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sandy Hook, that mother bought that young man, his semi-automatic weapon. Yeah. I, I, it's just, Again, uh, and again, you, you know, I, I don't think there's any simple answer to this. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, you know, that's just my, my opinion on it. Yeah, well, let's talk about, you know, thank you for engaging on that a little bit. I mean, I don't think any of us have answers. And I think all of us are um, afraid for um, our children or, and our families mm-hmm. and your children, right? We're afraid for yeah. them. I, I do want to talk. I mean, I um, wanted you to come on because you are heavily involved in a lot of issues here in the Seattle area. Maybe start off by giving us a kind of a broad brush uh, <laughs> of all the things that you're involved in before we uh, dive into a few things. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to uh, I'm not running for office. I'm not trying to uh, uh be a soothsayer and all of that kind of stuff. But no, I've been involved in a number of organizations. Um, one of the ones that I, we actually first started in was the, uh, it used to be the ML King celebration committee. And that was way back in 1983. I think it was about 17, 15, 17 of us. And uh, we met and we planned the march, et cetera. And it's gravitated to be a major event here on ML King Day uh, statewide. Um, and we found out that our the organization was one of the oldest west of the Mississippi. Uh, actually, we are the oldest. And uh, I'm part of that committee. And it's called the C- Celebration Committee. We also have, um, uh, I've also been involved with WENA which is just recently on the board of Washington Equity Now Alliance. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, our spokesperson is Jesse Weinberg, who's actually very fundamental in organizing it. And, you know, so it, 
that is dealing with issues involving equity, you know, bringing back uh, the, recently the governor. This is the first anniversary, first year anniversary of uh, his signing of the executive order 2202, uh, bringing back affirmative action in state government. Uh, you remember I-200 back in 1998 did away with all of that. Well, it's a, it, it's a different circumstance. So it's it, we're looking at that as a vehicle to bring about equity. Um, so let yeah. me interrupt you. It, so I remember reading about uh, Governor Inslee signing that. Um, and just to recap that for our audience who doesn't uh, know um, uh, initiative, let's see, back in, was it 1995 uh, before... Before I-1000, it was Initiative 200. I-200, right. right. I-200. And so that passed with, um, t it was the Tim Iman era, era right. where that John took Carlson, away. Right. Yeah, John Carlton, Carlson, right? right? Yeah. And that took away, I guess the misconceptions about affirmative action is that people believe that that was giving access to unqualified brown and black yeah, people into jobs. And so at the time, and I have a little bit of knowledge about the data because when I ran for office, I remember researching it and roughly, so I ran in 2018. And when I looked at the numbers from 1995, at that time, the numbers were like 14 percent mm -hmm. of brown and black people that were uh, getting access to education that were getting access to government contracting, right. the way to build wealth. When I ran five years ago, that number had dropped from 14% to one point something yeah. percent. Right. And so the false narrative that has been perpetuated here yeah. in white communities is that, you know, brown and black people are getting in unqualified preference. And, preference. Right. and so, but that is not the case. Exactly and so affirmative right. action really is affirming whiteness. It is affirming white people are getting into all the access and opportunity. And so initiative to 1000 came out. Right. And I know Jesse Weinberry, local activist here in the Seattle area, um, spearheaded that. And then I, I I know many of us knocked a lot of doors and it mm -hmm. fell short right. of the vote. Really, barely. really small. small. But now the governor signed a veto or something to yeah. override that. And so right. what does that mean now? Well, he's requiring all state agencies to abide by the executive order 2202. What is also on the is overlaying this, though, is the uh, our Actually, we're watching the Supreme Court, and we know that in June, they're going to be probably uh, giving out their decision regarding the Harvard case, and I think it's North Carolina. These are cases involving affirmative action in student enrollment. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's important that you point it out. In 1998, when the fully I-200 was fully implemented, between 1998 and up until like a year, up till now, 98% of all public dollars for contracting and services went to non-minority firms. 98% of your dollars, my dollars, public dollars, tax dollars went to non-minority firms. That If that doesn't say we need to do something to remedy that, I don't know what else. Uh, do I have to hit you over the head with it? No, it, it, and it's obvious. And, and the so, statistics show. Yeah. So from um, even while brown and black people don't have the access, 
uh, the highest demographic, two, two data points I'm going to reference tonight, the highest rate of advanced education in the United States right now is occurring uh, by black women. So black women are still getting ourselves with letters behind our names to advance ourselves. So we are still without having the preference to get in. We're still higher educated. And I believe that scares people, yeah. number one. Um, and number two, the monies that are the public monies, our tax dollars are going to all of these white owned firms. And even though, I mean, this is my opinion, um, even though the state has uh, measurements in place to help give public dollars to women and minority owned businesses, those that money is not reaching us the way yeah. that it's reaching white businesses and the contracting dollars. So people are building all this wealth off of our tax dollars. It's going to predominantly white male businesses. And this is a huge, it's a significant issue for our communities because of our ability to build generational wealth mm -hmm. and to be able to provide for fam our families. And so, so now we have an intervention, I guess is the word, for the governor signing yeah. this, overriding it. And so now we start from basically 1%. And now, you know, I don't know what the next steps are. I think we're all kind of trying to pay attention to. Um, equity is is not about equality. To turn To turn brown and black lives around, Prosperity for our families requires a significant influx of money. It's why we are starting, it's why we're talking about reparations. Right. It's That's being talked about on the national level. You can't undo this much injustice by giving $100,000 to some family and thinking that that's going to satisfy that family and call it good. And so is, is the you belong to Democrats for diversity and inclusion. Is there more activism work going oh, to yeah. be able to hold? Yeah, we're hoping uh, when I and all the other organizations that are part of the affiliation, uh, uh, the Washington Equity Now Alliance, I said Alliance, uh, we're hoping to get it codified, which means making it into law because the executive order only lasts until the governor's term and then it could be changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, think of it. Nine, take a dollar bill and take 98 cents of it out. And that's what's left for us. Mm -hmm. A dollar bill, take 98 cents, actually 98 point something percent out. Mm -hmm. That's why you get almost that 1%. It's really, it was really, uh, as they say, rounded up. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, because hey, that is significant. And that shows that there is a disparity. That shows that that needs to be remediated. And anyways, this, this whole issue of preference is not, again, it's, it's a hollow argument because nobody would believe that regardless of your race, creed, color, national origin, age, sex, marital status, or presence of any physical, sensory, mental disability, sexual orientation, or political ideology, that if you're not qualified for the job, that you should get it? No. But now we are more than qualified, yes. right? And so now begs the question, because that has happened, because that transition, the oppression, and so the community, us, we rise we, to that. We responded, and so, yes. Right, exactly. we responded. Right. right. And so now the question becomes, can we displace these folks? 
because now the term that's going around in the business world, at least in the nonprofit world, is now they're using the term shared power Mm -hmm. because they don't want to give up the power. So now they're trying to inch into it. Um, And my sarcasm says, you know, it's 2023. And so they're trying to still hold on to it for another 50 years before um, a brown or black person actually has the power. But we are now at a place where education wise, our communities have been rising up and above and beyond. And the other statistic I was going to quote is I was recently listening to an economic forecast here on the east side, and they quoted the statistic of post-COVID, 44% of new businesses that stood up are owned by black women. Mm. And so here we are now, we've got another ecosystem, another economic engine that is here that money is not reaching these businesses. And right. so we have, so from, it's like a perfect storm because we're now at that point where mm-hmm. we are going to have to say no to generations of people that have been historically told yes mm-hmm. and who have had access and the privilege yeah, right. of having it all. Well, that's exactly it. And that's exactly what the underpinnings when you talk about this whole brouhaha about critical race theory. Well, when you start dismantling the fact that white supremacy is really what you're talking about, the, the, the ability to make laws and to uh, form and create institutions to oppress a group, mm-hmm. that's what it's about. And that's why they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to say anything about that. Because, again, this country has a real hard time talking about race because of slavery, because of genocide, and because of how immigrants are treated. Slavery against persons of African descent, genocide against the native. We had a policy to kill as many Indians as we could. Mm-hmm. And then the, how we treat immigrants. And so, you know, those are the three things that we cannot talk about. That's what I'm saying mm-hmm. when we talk about race. And, and it can't be done. And then on top of that, demographics are scaring a lot of people because fairly soon, in, in at least I might still be kicking I don't know, but in about 25 to 30 years, the population shift is going to be predicated on the fact that at least what the experts are saying, the majority of the people in this country were not going to be white. They're going to be biracial Mm -hmm. or multiracial, which means it's not that far off because the uh, there is a book. It's called Brown is the New White. Right. Right. It's by uh, the author, I think his name is Stephen Phillips. And I want to say the year he projects political power changes is 2035. That's what I heard. Right. So we're 10 years away, 12 years away from. And that is why that's the big reason why there's been such an influx of targeting of shutting down or trying to shut down brown and black people, access to education, all the things that help us prosper. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to pick this right back up, John. Hold on just a second. Thank you. COVID-19 are my income, my health, and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in, they talked to our lender and saved our home. Because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHAF.org. What up y'all, T-Dub here, as always, bringing you the news and art funding and opportunities. 
This year's Four Culture Project grants are live now, and here's what you need to know to apply. Four Culture Project grants fund cultural activities and projects throughout King County. If you are an individual or group with arts, heritage, or preservation at its core, then this funding is for you. And if you're new to the grant application process, Four Culture hosts virtual workshops and has a team of grant managers ready to assist you in the process. The deadline to apply is March 23rd. Head over to fourculture.org for more. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Cindy Bright. Cindy Bright. Uh, with my guest this evening, John Yasataki, sitting here with me. He is the host of Seattle Here and Now, and he's also the host of What's Cooking in Columbia City. So I'm going to turn to him. We were just having a discussion about you know, a lot of the political issues, the um, affirmative action, some of the issues around equity here um, in the state of Washington. And we're in a progressive state. And I'll say that with quotation marks. Um, and we are still running against a 1% uh, of people having access. John, do you, um, do you have any view? Do you follow politics as closely as I follow it? And are you following what's going on in the legislature right now? Well, you know, I, that, that's kind of a hard question to respond to because you can't help <laughs> but be impacted by politics. Everything is political. Uh, you know, our socioeconomic is based on politics, you know. In other words, uh, if you have the ability to pass laws and create situations, uh, again, those institutions, uh, you know, that is involving politics. When people say, I don't want to, hold it. It begins by the simple fact that you get registered and vote. You can impact the system that way and it can and it can happen however there's a whole lot of gray area out there um because uh especially let's talk about the issue reparations that is a national issue because what is at stake to me and this is my interpretation how do you rectify and re remedy and remediate and uh, repay someone for hundreds of years of their labor, blood, sweat, and toil, and their lives. How, how can you put a dollar figure on that? But every major city in this country that was born out of slavery was built by slaves. Uh, by that, I mean, I mean, when you talk about the cities of the South where slavery was there, and, and, and let me say this, don't ever bite off on that belief that the South was, you know, they were uh, fighting for this higher uh, belief in states' rights. They were fighting to preserve the way they live, you know, because the way they live was predicated on slavery. What, do you, what do you think we should do about reparations? Well, it's like this. Understand the whole, the whole premise behind what slavery meant. Slavery was based upon the belief of racial superiority of racial superiority, white superiority, and that it was okay to go to Africa and bring people in because they were dark-skinned. And the church said, those that are lighter color, those white is purity, black is evil. I mean, that's some of the teaching. And the, the, the church granted, you know, the Roman Catholic Church granted the asiento, which meant you could engage in the slave trade from Africa to Spanish colony or Spanish possessions. That wasn't written off the books in the Vatican until 18, 1965. 
And so, uh, again, all of these things just added up. All the things that have happened, all the harmful, hurtful things, uh, the destroying of Rosewood, you know, uh, the, the Black Wall Street, all of these things, the lynchings, all of this stuff. And it was based upon the belief of white superiority. And it was based upon the fact that they had the right to conscript somebody, take them from their homeland, put them in a place, make them work and build and, and give their life and their blood. And the thing about it is the worst variant of slavery, slavery is bad no matter how you cut it. But the worst was the North American variant, which was practiced here. Because if you were a child of a slave, you were a slave. Your children's 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 children would be slaves. And it's it's uh, and when they stopped the slave trade, they created breeding farms in this country. So what do you think here in Washington state? Let's come bring it down a um, another level, yeah, like when you no, no, cause like in San Francisco, yeah. so there is a, a lot of controversy there, but what San Francisco has done is proposed a $5 million per black citizen, uh, fee to mm-hmm. be paid back. And of course that creates all kinds of, yeah. I mean, you can just imagine because even very basic things like trying to uh, from the federal government trying to relieve student debt because it will yeah. disproportionately help black families. It's yeah. created this huge backlash um, and judgment of things that people who have access and daddies don't have an understanding of. But here, if we talk practically about what we should do here in Washington state, should we be thinking about a dollar figure uh, attached to black residents here? Well, I've heard two discussions. Uh, one was, yes, p- give us money. But the other one was, give us property. Uh, because uh, to me, the simplest way to wealth is owning property to me. At least that's what I was taught. Um, and uh, I, I think it's a practice that most people of color understand, that owning property is important and it's a way so where could the state of Washington give us property here? Let's just break that down because the elected people are watching this show. So if we're talking to our legislators, what do we want to say to them? What if they give us property, what property should we get? Well, you, no, I hope I don't, you, you're probably going to get some response, <laughs> but you got millions of acres of federal land out there. Parks, rec, you know, places like that. Um, yeah, that are undeveloped and they're pristine. And yeah, I, I'm a nature lover too, just like you are. And I, I'm not a tree hugger, but I, I believe in nature and, and the environment and all that. But you've got land out there. I mean, when. And should we yeah. be budgeting? You know, I don't mean to interrupt your thought. No. I mean, should we be budgeting? You know, in our legislative sessions, that's why I was asking, are you yeah. following what's going on? Should we be budgeting X percent of our budgets every year now to hold back? So it's kind of like what corporate America does yeah. to give executive white executive leadership teams hold back X percent of budget so that we can give them bonuses, bonuses at the end of the so year. So why don't I we know, start I thinking know. about yeah. holding back X percent of our operating budget here in the state of Washington mm-hmm. yeah. um, and designating uh, some sort of stipend or something per year? I mean, well, these are just ways 
that 10 we can, cents of every tax dollar can go towards that fund. You know, the right. thing is, but think of it, though. Uh, and, and I got to get this in there. Uh, in 1864, five, William T. Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman was in the historic March to the Sea. He targeted Atlanta as the place he was going to end up. And he said, we're going to do this. We're going to destroy that city because we're going to teach these rebels a lesson that they supported slavery and they rebelled against the United States. Then he came up with this thing called Field Order 15, which includes North Carolina, parts of South Carolina and Florida. And he said, we are going to recapture all this land and free the slaves and give them that property. And that's where we get that term, 40 acres. Mm. The mule was brought in because Sherman said, hold it, we need to talk to the people that are affected. So he brought a number of black clergymen in to talk about it and ask them, how do you want to be, you know, how do you want to do this? I mean, you have the uh, ability for self-determination here. Tell us what you want to do. I mean, he let them say, he says, 40, literally, that's where they believe that the term 40 acres and a meal came from because you needed you know, the land and you need to work the land and you need to be able to work the land. And that's why he had a meal and everything. But that was signed by Lincoln. Lincoln then got assassinated. It was rescinded by Andrew Johnson. Uh, and so, it, no, I, I, I could not believe what I was reading when I read that. Field Order 15. And anybody listening or watching, go online and look at that, and you will understand how fascinating that is. And that was one of the things, like I said, uh, we wouldn't even be talking about reparations if that had happened. There's another interesting thing going on in the legislature right now. So I hope our uh, audience is paying attention to, uh, if you guys don't follow the bills, um, and certainly um, after legislative session, uh, which ends April the 23rd, we'll be doing a lot more updates on this show about what has transpired during our, the session. There is an interesting issue that the Democrats are trying to push right now, which is mm -hmm. around the wealth tax. Right. And so in the state of Washington, everybody knows because most people are carrying the burden of taxes here while the whatever percent, and I want to say, um, don't quote me on this number, but there are like eight or nine very wealthy people that the state has been trying to get to be able to pay uh, taxes on. And that, that money from those eight or nine people would address many of these issues around funding education, around our housing crisis that we have here, and could also go mm -hmm. for helping repair communities of color reparations and things that could help change lives of people yeah. and it's worth billions of dollars but i quickly glanced at it before i came on air and it sounds like it's it's tripping up which we Solid. expect yeah. it's tripping yeah. up but yeah. it's yeah. on the i know it's there and i know that the washington democrats have been pushing to try to get that tax thing uh that tax bill passed well, the, the, the simplification is that <laughs> democrats are for taxing and, and, and quote supporting social programs and, and that kind of stuff. And the, and the Republicans are noted for saying, don't tax us. We're the rich. We, we don't need to be taxed. We, we can use our money to help absolve some of these things, which they don't. And these aren't social programs. Well, social uh, programs are when we bail banks out, right? Social, right. Program, right? social I mean, programs it, are when... It's, again, it, it's... Again, 
so contradictory and basically, you know, again, Republicans are noted for not wanting to be taxed um, because they don't believe. Well, it, I don't get into that. That's a simplistic statement. But uh, we know that they're resisting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so we'll, we'll just leave it at that. And and so, you know, what we're talking about is what's due. We have to find a way mm-hmm. to repay the people who built this country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's another issue that's come up uh, time and time again. How do you repay somebody for all of that they've done? I mean, and, and, you know, um, I love that shirt that uh, we built this country for free. And that's a fact, mm-hmm. you know, uh, our, our national capital mm-hmm. was built well, by slaves. Still, you know, one could make an argument. We're still working for free. I mean, mm-hmm. don't even get me going on. We've talked on this show many times about uh, what's happening to black women in organizations, wage disparities. And last week we, or the week before we had uh, a partner Ray on with us who talked, mm. she's a, uh, a metrics person. We see where all the, the numbers were 95% of DEI work is going to white women wow. businesses. So they, the, the pattern and the problem is still being perpetuated and mm. it is being used now as the scapegoat for why the Silicon Valley Valley Bank failed. It's because they said, because they were focused on DEI, all white bank, all white leadership saying that they were distracted because of this. So they keep perpetuating these narratives that they don't want to focus on paying us. And so why don't we stop kidding ourselves, right? What We are not, they are not going to pay us. They are not going to uh, equalize pay equity and that, oh, right. right? So we have to have, we are, reparations are definitely going to have to come into play because even for, to, for us to have our own businesses mm-hmm. and then we're still fighting to get capital into our businesses, we're going to have to repay that. You ha- you can't keep leaving this divide so huge. And then legislative session after legislative session after legislative session, we still can't get some of these things passed. Mm-hmm. And so, Well, yeah, and that is an issue. And it has been, uh, let's talk about the history of that kind of stuff. Well, look at the Small Business Administration. Uh, you know, uh, they basically were the creation to help small businesses to help that kind of thing. But I mean, I know of instances where because of the industry practice of, uh, I, I know these five African-American men, all professional men, all with you know significant years of experience uh, and acumen to run a business as well as having the wealth to do it. You know, the uh, monetary, uh, savings that they had, all of these things and access to it. <laughs> the five of them were rejected by one of the biggest banks here, one of the national banks. And, and it just basically just told me that no matter how good you look on paper and how, and, and you may not just be looking good on paper, it's substantive, it is real. You have to go through that assessment of your race, mm-hmm. your gender, all of those things. And it's still, that's still how it's done, you know? Well, and, and so again, yes, that whole system, you know, I, I'm hopeful. I mean, I don't know this. I'll, we'll be able, we have uh, Representative Jamila Taylor's coming on the last uh, Wednesday of the month to give us a mm-hmm. debrief. Um, she's been doing some really great work mm-hmm. in the legislature, but there are 
a myriad of issues that have to be tackled. So if mm-hmm. you think about the lending, you talked about the Small Business Administration and, um, you know, what it takes to get a loan and mm-hmm. um, how credit scores are significant um, yeah. and, and brown and black communities are expected to have 800 credit scores while they're making 53 cents to the dollar. And I just saw a study come out this last week about it takes $40 to $60 an hour to be able to afford rent in this city. Wow. So the numbers don't make sense. Mm-hmm. And we can't get, if you're keeping oppressing races of people to not give them that earning power, they can't lit housing, huge issue, right? Can't get into housing with $15 an hour. and. Yeah. Uh, so again, we we continue to talk about these kind of t- topics every week, and you know I like to hear ideas of what people have and what they think about it. Um, also, trying to understand what some of these different organizations are that we're all involved in. You're involved in them. Mm-hmm. What are they doing to help us to advance mm-hmm. uh, solutions for some of these issues? Well, yeah, I mean, just drill down. You yeah, know, the economic piece. The social piece. I mean, one of the things that is creating a lot of, a lot of concern is the rise of hate crimes, and uh, that's one of the things I, I wanted to to talk about because mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about significant increases. Uh, still, the number one group being attacked based on race: African Americans. Mm-hmm. Secondly, Asians. Mm-hmm. Then in look. Native American, American, and then other groups, LGBTQ, but still. At the top of the list is the tax hate crime acts against African Americans, uh, as well as persons who are black, as and then Asians. I think a three thousand percent increase in crimes against Asians. It was about seven percent of all the criminal crimes. And I, I t- did, had a chance to look at the supplemental report from the FBI, and um, what they did was they adjusted it based on uh, information being reported. So that's the other thing. The FBI can only report on hate crimes that they've been given from other law law enforcement jurisdictions. And I'm going to be very honest with you. If you're in backwater Mississippi and you're a white sheriff, I doubt very seriously if you're going to even talk about a hate crime there. I mean, okay, I mean, I'm making fun and all that. But it is a fact. There are pockets in this country where they don't believe there's such a thing as a hate crime especially against people of color, beginning with African-Americans. And, and so who is the largest minority population in those places? African-Americans, especially in the South. And, and so, you know, here we go. 10,000, 12,000, uh, 10,000 uh, incidents with 12,000 victims. Uh, we're talking about an increase of 11.6% in 2021 to 2022. And they did say that they've gotten reports from 14,859 law enforcement agencies, which is good. And that represents they reporting about 91.1% of the U.S. population. In other words, there's a good majority of these law enforcement agencies that are reporting these incidents across the country at 91, reflecting 91% of the population. And that's good. The problem is it would be great if it could be 100%, because I'm guaranteeing you there are pockets in this country where you have large populations of African-Americans who are being attacked and victims of hate crime that's not going to get reported. 
I just, that's my suspicion. Okay. And do you, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think, I think an important thing to talk about for a moment um, is that we're in a presidential election year. And so with the increase of hate crimes and um, there is going to be, we're foolish to not believe that there is going to be increased targeting to brown and black people, right. uh, even to black media, people, those of us who are speaking and talking about what's going on, it would not surprise me, right? Like we all have to be particularly careful because um, I believe we're all targeted. Yep. And, you know, Washington is considered progressive uh, compared to the, you know, rest of the country. And so I could see that this could be an area that would be uh, there would be a lot of um, effort to infiltrate on social media, to infiltrate mm -hmm. messaging and to try to harm people. So have you heard or is anybody else talking about that topic? Well, Washington state <laughs> happens to sit between two other states where there's been a significant rise in hate group and hate group activity and hate group organization. Idaho is one state. We know that Oregon is the other. Uh, I recall years, a few years ago, that I ran across this group, all white, young white men, and uh, I was looking at their activities and all the things that they were doing in Portland, and the name got dropped on me. Hey, we're the Proud Boys, and when you talk in terms of things that have occurred across this country, D.C., a significant number of those participants in that, quote, insurrection were members of Proud Boys, uh, attacks in Portland, Proud Boys. I mean, we, we, you know, like I said, it, it, it's, it's obvious. There are acts of hate that occur by individuals. Okay. But what is disturbing and what is more frightening is the organization attack. In other words, a well-planned, organized effort. Uh, a few years ago, they found a, a, I think it was a duffel bag on under a park bench in Spokane along the march route for ML King celebration, and it had a bomb in it. And see, these are the kinds of things that, that are occurring in this country. Uh, people need to take, you know, at least the effort to, we're trying to, with a coalition of different groups, bolster the hate crime bill in this in this state. Uh, the Shepherd Bird Act was signed by President Obama in 2009, which included gender, gender, you know, sexual orientation. But we really want at the state level, we really like to, I'm part of another organization, one of the organizations is part of the Jewish uh, American Federation statewide. I was referred there by uh, the Anti-Defamation League friend of mine and is the representative of OCA because Asian crimes, uh, hate crimes, uh, crimes against uh, persons of Jewish faith, the anti-Semitic crimes is 300% increased. And again, at the top, still very high on the list uh, in the percentage of uh, hate crimes, African-Americans. So we all have an interest in this and we're working all to hopefully, hopefully not this session, but at some point in time, address the fact that we need to have more teeth in these these uh, anti-hate anti crime, I mean, hate crime bills and uh, punish these people. I mean, it's, it's an issue. 
Uh, so, man, well, thank for, thanks for letting me have the floor on that. No, I, it's, it's, it's an important topic, uh, uh, an extremely important topic, uh, again, because of the season that we're in now mm-hmm. um, and because we have continued to watch. I mean, we're seeing um, an increase, you know, when you look across the country and you look at attorney Ben Crump and you look at mm-hmm. civil rights attorney Lee Merritt, right. uh, you look at. Uh, Chris Stewart, you know, mm-hmm. like these these black lawyers across the country are fighting and representing. Yeah. I don't know how Attorney Crump does it. He's got like a new client every day yeah, on social media that he's trying to represent for because of yeah. murders and hate crimes and the things that families. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I just think it's important that we here in Washington state are not immune to this. And so it's an important thing for us to be paying attention to. And it's it's an important thing to know that um, our social media and conversations that we're having with each other uh, probably need to be scaled back because they are being monitored and bots are coming in and, you know, hate stuff is going to start or, or is going to increase. So, yeah, you, you know, let's look at it in an everyday circumstance. Yeah, we need the legislation. We need law enforcement to be involved. Forget defunding the police. We need them to be active in terms of dealing with these criminals out there that would you know, use race as an issue. But, you know, we're talking about how it affects all of us. Uh, we have disparities in the health system mm-hmm. that I'm listening to uh, this report, uh, NPR. If you are an African-American woman and you have a health issue such as cancer, such as, as you know, you're, le- you're probably going to be the one that's least likely to be put, moved up on the list for diagnostic and treatment. In other words, you're at the bottom of the list. And it, the disparities that are coming out are showing that, that you're, you'll be, you know, the last to be uh, diagnosed and you'll be the last to get a regimen and treatment. It is a, a fact. And these are white doctors that are saying this. You are an older black woman and you're ill. You are running the risk. You, you, it's like a gauntlet. You may get help. You may not get help. Yeah, we could do a whole show on I know, yeah. but it, And I know it, it, it's, it, it just it's unbelievable what I'm hearing. And then when you think about what happened during the the pandemic, it just exacerbated it and brought into the open the disparities in health based on race. Yep. So, you know, I just had to say that because I I was shocked. I was shocked uh, when I heard this. And uh, this was a great NPR report. and so I, you know, like I said, I'm going to be doing more follow-up. And it, and it boils down to who's getting treated, who's getting served, but who's getting trained and uh, educated to become doctors to serve our community and people of color. And how are they treated in the system? It's a whole show, John. It's a whole show. <laughs> it's a whole show. I'm sorry so I opened many. that door. But no, you know. it's a, it's, there's so much in that. Yeah. Um, remember, I could talk... Uh, myself about health, yes. right? You know, I have been through my yes. battles um, and my friends and my co-hosts yes. and everybody, we've all had to experience a lot of challenges. More power to that. you. More yeah. power to you. you yes. Know. Well, John, look, 
quick, fastest hour of the day is when I'm on air. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> I just want to thank you for coming on this evening and talking yeah. with me and talking with our community about what's happening here, the work that you're doing, the organizations that you're involved in. Well, I think it's important for our community that we continue to have these kind of conversations and to talk about what's going on. I, I emphasize and um, encourage us to look out for each other, mm -hmm. pay attention to our surroundings. Let's help fight this mm -hmm. uh, for justice and equity for all people. Yeah. I just think we'll be a better society as a result of this. So thank you, you for joining me yeah. tonight. Thank you all for tuning in tonight. Next week, we have another great uh, show. We are going to be doing a show on uh, black-led charter schools, and I think it's timely mm. to talk about the options that black families are choosing in order to get their children educated and to get them out of a system that is not educating them. So we're going to break that down next week. Thank you for joining us all this evening. We look forward to seeing you next week. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.